Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Well, good morning, Portico. Great to have you here today. Welcome those of you that are online and those of you in the overflow today. It's so good to have you join us. Well, let's jump right in. Get your Bibles out. And we're going to go to Exodus chapter 19. And if you have not yet downloaded our church app, I would encourage you to do that. Not only can you follow along and take notes, you can see the Bible references, but as a bonus just for you, whenever we do a push notification, you get notified if there's traffic in the city, if we're delayed, if it's snowing. Not going to snow today. I think we're pretty safe on that one. But here's something we are doing, by the way. Last week, we started a series of four little quick community surveys. They're coming out from our elder board. And so we sent one last Sunday. You can still participate. You can go back, fill out that one-question survey. We'll push another one out over the next four weeks. And we just want you to respond. We're trying to sample a little bit of uh, your experience at Portico, some of the things you're going through. But don't do it right now. Not while I'm talking, okay? Everybody good? All right, let's get our Bibles. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 19, and we're going to season 3, episode 1. We're at Sinai. We're calling it the Sinai Rest Stop. Israel is camped at the big mountain. And so we're going to look at why is this going on, what's taking place here. Now, how many of you have a real favorite summer activity that you enjoy doing every year? It's your vacation activity? Just me. All right? So... Here's, here's something growing up. You guys know a little bit if you've been around the church for a while. This is what you do know about me as a child. My parents, every year, two weeks minimum, we would go camping in the mountains. Dad had this 9 by 12 green canvas. I think it was an army surplus tent that we used to have. Load up the car, six kids, two parents, a dog, and we would go camping. I mean, we just moved the neighborhood out to the mountains. And we would all fit into this tent. We had the Coleman stove and the lantern, you know, the white gas stove. Some of you remember that. You're going, what? Lithium batteries, Doug. And so we would have to, like, pressurize that stove so that we could actually do the cooking fuel. Anybody remember this? Whoa. You're missing out on life, I'm telling you. That stuff would blow up and burn. It was like great. It was like a kid's. Pyros love this kind of stuff. But we'd have all, we'd get into the tent, and then we had one air mattress. And you know who that was for. Mom and dad. Kids never get the air mattress. You guys, you're young. Your bodies are good. Sleep on the rocks. You're okay that way. Now, just so you know, I still love camping. I'm a Four Seasons kind of guy. King-size bed at the resort. All good. But uh, just life changes a little bit. Why talk about camping? Because Israel is out in front of Mount Sinai. Now, we're going to discover that God could have taken them on a shorter route to get to the land of Canaan. But he says to them, no, no, I'm going to intentionally move you this direction. Now, we knew he was dealing with Pharaoh. There was a little bit of that. Then we get across the Red Sea. And on Tuesday night, Joe's been doing a great job just teaching us about the background of the story. And and Tuesday night again, we're going to get right into this. But he brings them to Mount Sinai. And here, God says, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Pitch your tents. Let's do a retreat. Let's hang out at Mount Sinai for a little while. Why would God do that? Why would he take them out into the wilderness, have them pitch their tents, and then do a camping trip before they get to go to the promised land? So that's what we're going to explore. Take your Bibles. Let's go to Exodus chapter 19, and we read in verse 1 these words. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, so we're three months in, on that very day, 
They came to the desert of Sinai, and there they set out after Rephidim, and they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel, here it is, and Israel camped there in, in the desert in front of the mountain. So they're in the desert camping in front of the mountain. And immediately you have to go, God, what are you doing? Why would you do this? Now I've got a question for you. What immediately comes to your mind when you hear the words Moses and Mount Sinai? So for most people, we, uh, we quickly jump ahead in the story and we go, oh, I know this one. It's the Ten Commandments. It's the laws, the observances, the festivals, the celebrations, the do's and the don'ts, all the things that thou shalt not statements that we're supposed to do. So we leapfrog into the story and sometimes we miss sort of the essence and the nature of the story. So a lot of people, what they do is they're reading through the Bible and they get to the section, they go, yeah, wow, that gets a little heavy. They got all these commandment things and all these rules and regulations of what you can and cannot do, and we tend to skip over. Anybody ever done that? We just, like, we fast forward, we get to the next chapter or next book where it seems to be a little more interesting. Now, before you're tempted to skip over, I do want to spend a few moments today and ask you this question. Why would God, why would he have him stop at Mount Sinai? Why would he take time there to establish in their hearts a very, very specific practice before they move into the promised land. Now, what we do know in Scripture is that God would instruct Israel through Moses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Why did he do that? They came out of polytheistic culture. All these gods of Egypt, he goes, no, 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 one, one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you go, Okay, why would God do that? Because the essence of what God was about to do was all about relationship. See, a lot of people get into the book of Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, and they go, oh, that's where God starts this brand new religion, and he gives them these do's and the don'ts and the things they can and cannot do. But friends, listen, humanity has cornered the market on religion, not God. We make everything a religion. God was actually more interested in establishing relationship with his people. That's why he says, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, God's going to give him a lot of provision. He's going to get a lot of provision around what that relationship looks like. But if you're one of those individuals who tends to think of the Old Testament, particularly Exodus, as the Ten Commandments and the laws, and let's just move right on and get off of that, I want you to stop and look at it through a fresh set of eyes because it's all about relationship. And God's going to say there are some core elements of relationship that will determine Israel's future success. And you go, Doug, why would that matter to me? Because it's these same core elements that will determine our success in our relationship with each other and our relationship with God. You ready to go? Get your notes out. Let's take this down. I'm going to give you three thoughts as we go through today. Here's number one. What, what was it that God wanted them to know about relationship? First, community. Community. Now, this is a word that gets so distorted. We've heard it so many times, it almost just kind of blurs out. We go, oh, yeah, yeah, community, love one another, bear with one another, live together with one another. We go, we, we understand the word community, but I don't know if we really do. Because when you think about community, what God would do is he'd bring the people to the mountain, to Mount Sinai, have them camp out there. And for God, this was essential. Israel needed absolute clarity, clarity about what community is. You go, well, why is that? So it's not a trick question, but it's interactive church. Everybody in? All right, here we go. How many years was Israel enslaved in Egypt? 400 years. Pretty good. All right. So we've got around 400 years 
of slavery. How many generations are represented in 400 years? Anybody want to take a guess? All right, let me give you a little hint. Uh, sociologists look at our generational patterns and they go, typically within a 100-year span, you have three generations. Now let's do a math thing. Three times four? Well, you didn't have to hesitate. You're pretty good at math. Do it again. Three times four? Twelve generations. You go, why should I care about twelve generations? Because what we quickly discover is that our traditions and our practices and our values actually dissolve within one generation. This was a community of people that had been beaten up, abused, battered. They'd gone through 12 generations experiencing what we would call a wilderness journey with Egypt. And God needs them to understand, you don't really know what community is. In your brokenness, we're going to make sure that before you get into the promised land, And before we get everything established as a nation and a people, you need to come together and be in community with me as God and be in community with each other and learn the deeper dynamic of this. This really came home to me when I started to think about the loss of our practices. So think carefully. When you think about your own generation, how many of you, by the way, have ever gone ancestry.ca.uk.whatever? Yeah, okay, good number of you. We like to go back and learn about our generations. Why is that? Well, I can speak to my parents. So I think for the most part, I could probably look at my parents' life and go, I think I know why my parents moved where they moved, participated or practiced the values or the traditions that they did, and why we have them the way they are today. But if you put one generation behind that, if I went to my grandparents, it gets a little thinner. If I go to my great-grandparents... I can't even begin to explain. Why did they leave North Dakota and travel up into central Alberta? Why did they move from Manitoba, go up into northern British Columbia? What was behind? What motivated that? What work was driving that? So I began to realize the truth of the Scripture here again, that community dissolves within a single generation. Listen to this. This comes from uh, Rod Dreher. He writes an article in Christianity Today. He said, all it takes is the failure of a single generation to hand down a tradition for that tradition to disappear from the life of a family and in turn community. Did you get that? One generation can fail to transmit a tradition or value and it will disappear. And we go, no, that would never happen. So let's do a little test. How many of you can remember sitting down as a family for family meal at supper time? Yeah, a number of you. Now, the follow-up, how many still do? See, something happened. I remember in our family, in our home, mom and dad, every night, it was like, no, everybody's at the table. We would sit around. We would talk about the day and the events and everything that took place. And then this wonderful little appeal was always in the background. It was called a television. And so as kids, we'd be going, oh, can we please, please, please watch TV? And we go, no, 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 no. no, We're all going to have our meal together. And, of course, we'd be waiting to go watch TV. And then somebody came up with the ingenious idea of those metal folding tables called TV trays. Aren't they wonderful? They were a gift straight from God. Because now we could beg our parents. We could still be eating as a family around a table with a TV at the center of the conversation. Wouldn't that be good? We're all tracking. We understand what happens there. How many of you now eat as a family or you eat in front of your iPod, your iPhone, you're distracted by something? It's great family meals. We're all like, oh, yeah, look at that. We don't even know who's at the table anymore. 
One generation, Rod says, we lose our culture, our traditions, and our values. God understood something. Israel had wandered, had been abused, had been beaten. They were so disillusioned that within 12 generations, for them to say we know community, God goes, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't know what it is to truly love one another, to be there for one another, to be in relationship with each other. You have to understand, and I'm going to build this into you. I want to show you a little bit of a graphic. God gave Moses some specific instructions about the layout at Mount Sinai. Have a look here at how the tribes are set out and what takes place when they come to Mount Sinai. At the very center of this graphic, anybody see where God is? You're looking for his face. It's not there. That's not him on the mountain, by the way, going, oh, there's my people down there. Down in the very center, you see where the smoke is rising up from the tabernacle? That's the presence of God in Israel. And where is it? At the very center of the camp. And God's amazing. God's amazing. You know, we always think Exodus, oh, Ten Commandments, watch carefully. God actually instructed Moses. He goes, hey, I've got a site development plan for my people. I'm into neighborhood planning. I want you to put the tribes to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, and then some of them are serving. The Levites are right in the center serving. So God's at the center. So no matter where you walked in the community... God was always at the center of your life. There's some power in that statement, isn't there? So when you look at this, he gave them a visual reminder because he understood that our memories are short. How many of you have short memories? You don't believe me. What did I preach two weeks ago? See, case in point. So God says, I'm going to give you a visual reminder so that you can see it. Every time the tabernacle moves and sets up, you people sit around this, and they do this. And do you notice at the bottom left-hand corner, coming down into the diagonal of the screen where Reuben and Judah are, does it look a little bit longer or elongated in the encampment? What does that look like to you? What does that whole picture look like to you? A cross. So what was God doing? God at the center, foreshadowing for his people. You're encamped in the shape of a cross. There's a day coming when Jesus will be here. Jesus, God, will be at the center of the cross. I will be there for you. No wonder when Joseph had the angel make the announcement, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God God with us. John, a close follower of Jesus, was so connected in this, tied into the story. And he said, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The power of what God does in community. Friends, don't miss this. Exodus was not about establishing a religion. It was about forging a relationship. And God does this all the way through the scripture. So the Israelites and those who would become followers of Jesus would see the big picture. This was God at work. Exodus 19, it's in your notes, verses 3 and 4. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. And he said, this is what you're to say to the descendants of who? Jacob. Why did he call out Jacob? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He goes, in case you've forgotten, you've got history. And what you're to tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. That's God. That is God building relationship, calling us into community, and ensuring that we understand the very essence of what our life is to be. Like Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, so that we now understand. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing who? Okay, just a minute. We just read back there in Exodus, God says, I brought you. Paul now says, hey, God is bringing us. Us 
to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great... Does that sound like religion? That sounds like a, a relationship to me. So it gave God great pleasure to do this. He was so thrilled to be able to do this, and he purposed and he planned to do it. So God wanted to make sure that Israel understood everything I'm about to do. It's not about the laws. It's not about the religions. It's not about the observances. It's about a relationship that you'll love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for those in the future who will come to him through Jesus Christ, it gave him great pleasure so that we could be in relationship with him. Friends, why do we follow God today? I don't do it so that I have to follow a schedule and a routine and a bunch of disciplines in my life. I don't need that. You don't need that. I do it because God brought me to him. God brought me to himself, and he did it through Jesus Christ. And he goes, Doug, your sins are forgiven. Your past is cared for. I purpose to do it because it gave me great pleasure. Now be in community with me. And to the rich young ruler, he said, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's a whole lot of community. And that's a whole lot of relationship, isn't it? There's a second word that I want to get into here. And it's the word covenant. The word covenant. The entire relationship between God and Israel was going to be founded upon a covenant. So we need to dig into this just a little bit deeper because it's going to be a brand new day. They're going to experience community. But God says, so that you know the basis upon which this community is built. So what God was saying, your community with me and your community with each other, we're going to build it on the basis of a covenant relationship. In your notes, Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5. Here's what we read. Now, if you obey me fully and you keep my, what's the word? Covenant. Then God says, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. So God says, I purposefully am entering into a covenant relationship with you. I ask you to obey. Boy, those words echo to the words of Jesus, if you obey me and my Father. He says, I ask you to obey me, and if you will obey me, then you're going to be my treasured possession. We're going to have this incredible relationship together. Now again... Anytime we hear Mount Sinai and Moses, we tend to think about Ten Commandments. And as soon as we think of Ten Commandments, we think of rules, regulation, and religion. In fact, I have a picture of some commandments on the stone. Let's have a look at this. These are the typical ones. Thou shalt have no other God. How many of you memorize these, by the way, when you were growing up? Yeah, a number of you. Parents would make you memorize them, and you'd go, okay, make, especially number five, honor your father and your mother. You got that one down, right? Always. You could skip the first four. As long as you got the number five, they were happy with it. So I grew up, and as many of us have, we grow up and we go, oh, they were written in English. No, they weren't. Let's go to the next slide, and let's show you one that's in Paleo-Hebrew. So this, uh, this is a Paleo-Hebrew. This is actually uh, a true artifact, archaeological artifact that was discovered. This was discovered in 1913. They were digging a railway line. This was junk. And they found it. This was actually written in the text. That is the Ten Commandments. Nine of the Ten Commandments are written on there. And it was buried. And when it was found, this just sold at auction, by the way, for 850000 U.S. dollars. That's about $3 billion Canadian. Uh, so $850,000. And it was sold on this condition. It would be accessible for public display. When it was discovered, it had been sold off to a local person in Israel, and it was put into the courtyard. People, why it's so faded is people were walking over it. They just thought it was an old stone. 
They didn't realize, nobody could read that language. And when they, the archaeologists actually discovered what it was, it was immediately purchased and taken, put it in display. And so now this is down in the U.S. and just sold for that crazy amount of money. Why do I show you all of that? Because our minds immediately go to rules and regulations with Mount Sinai. So we think of something like this, that the finger of God wrote on the stone. Moses came down. Israel was sinning. Moses breaks the stone. Can you imagine that moment? He was so mad he broke God's handwriting. I wouldn't want to go back up the mountain to God on that one. Where are my stones? Oh, about that. So you got this picture, and for a lot of us, we were raised with this whole essence of this, like, ooh, law and regulation and discipline that's going to come out of that. But the foundation upon which God was building was a covenant. So a lot of background work. Now, I'm going to throw a lot over to Joe for Tuesday night. In other words, I'm going to mess you up and let Joe fix you up. So Tuesday night, if you come out, Joe will actually be getting into a lot of the background on the story here. Here's what I do want to mention to us. In our Western interpretation, our English interpretation, we have interpreted the Hebraic text, Ten Commandments. But if you were to speak to the rabbis and look into the rabbinical and the Torah, the phrase is better translated, saying, thing, okay, or word. So it would be the ten, we've translated to say Ten Commandments. But in the, in the Torah and the rabbis, they interpret it to say, no, it's, it's the ten declarations. It's the ten sayings. It's the ten words. It's the first ten of what they have summarized to be 613 rules, commandments, and observations that God gives. And so God was giving his people some very, very clear directions on what to eat, what not to eat, what relationships should look like, how your relationships should work, how should you punish, you know, faulty relationships. Gave them a whole, whole bunch of these. Now stop for a moment and take the 10, because we know these, they're the most common. I found in Exodus. So when you take the 10, they're not, in our English we say commandment, they're actually 10 sayings. The best way to understand this, they're the 10 buckets or overarching categories under which the other 603 will actually find a designation. So when you talk about it, we all, I, at least I was raised, I was raised with don't break one of those 10. And God's probably thinking, well, actually there's like 613. So this, the 10 are really these categories under which all the rest fall. You can take all of those other laws and you can actually drop them all down in there and you'll find that all of them fit within those 10 sayings, those 10 declarations. So what we end up doing is we form strong religion around commandments. And God goes, oh, this was all about relationship. This was all about giving you safety nets and rules and, and boundary markers so that if you walk within these boundary markers, your interpersonal relationships are going to be great. Your relationship with, the, with me is going to be great. In fact, if you stay within that pathway, you'll know what's right and what's wrong, and we will have a great relationship together, which Jesus would pick up in the New Testament and talk about, you want to have abundant life? You want to experience a true life? Then I can share that with you, and I can tell you what that's going to be like. So that's what those are, and we'll dive into that a little bit on Tuesday night. Is that fair, Joe? Okay, we'll get a little bit deeper. So now let me take you farther. Everybody tracking? Thank you for the three of you that are with me. The rest of you, let's pull you back in. Let's go a little deeper. So I use the word covenant. But as soon as I use the word covenant, we do a subtle substitution. It's 
just because it's part of our culture. So we drop in the word contract because we understand contracts better. So a contract is like this. So Joe and I are going to set up a contract together. So a contract has rules or expectations for both parties, right? You do this, I do this. But if one of the partners breaks the contract, then the contract is effectively void, void, dissolved, destroyed. So if I break the contract, Joe's released. That means if I break the rules, Joe hires a lawyer, sues me, gets my house, gets my car, gets my dog. I don't have a dog. But, you know, he, that's what we do. So in our Western mind or our North American mind, we think that way because we cannot get away from all the lawyer commercials that are on TV. So we go, oh, broken contract, that's the way it works. But God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to have a covenant relationship with you. A covenant relationship is entirely different. In a covenant relationship, what God was saying to the people of Israel, that's why he had him camped there. He goes, so you're going to get this. I know you're going to drop the ball. I know you're going to... Man, they were already worshiping the golden calf before Moses got down the hill. God understood that they were not going to keep up their end of the deal. And God says, but in covenant with you, I am the faithful one. I am the long-suffering one. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. My love for you will never change. How amazing is a covenant relationship. So God says, no matter what you do and what you go through, there is nothing that you're going to do that's going to sever my love for you. See, what religion does... Religion fills us with fear that if we break one of the rules or one of the commandments, that we got to run from God because we have broken our part of the deal and somehow we need to hide from God. So religion fills us with fear and fills us with all kinds of other expectations. But God says, no, no, this is about relationship. It's all about relationship. When you break the rule, sure, there's going to be pain. Sure, there's going to be guilt. Sure, there's going to be consequences. But my love for you is still going to be steadfast and strong. I'm not running away from you. And isn't it amazing how many times when people fail God, they go into hiding. God says, you don't have to hide. That's why he called Adam out. Where are you? What are you doing hiding in the trees? Let me bring you back and restore you. And so this wonderful relationship that God establishes here, let me take it even deeper into the New Testament. In your notes, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, watch this. God showed his great love for who? Okay, you owning that? So put, put you, put me, put the word me. God showed his great love for me by sending Christ to die for me while I was still a what? Whoa. God goes, it's a covenant relationship, not a contract. So if you're sitting there measuring the depths of your sin and the magnitude of your sin and the number of your sin, God says, listen, all I want you to do, repent of your sins. Tell me you're sorry for your sins. Trust in my son, Jesus Christ, and I'll forgive your sins. And my covenant with you is I'll never leave you, I'll never abandon you, and I'll never forsake you. Isn't that amazing? What a great God we serve. So he brings us in. That's why the word is called grace. It's nothing that we can do. It's everything that God can do. Now, real quickly, can you think of any other relationships that are based on covenant in our culture? Marriage. Nobody wanted to admit that one. Marriage. The Bible says it's good for a man to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. 
five days, Chris Drummond running the soundboard. Everybody online, you can't see him, but five days, this man's going to celebrate what it is to leave his father and mother and everybody else behind and accept the soundboard and be united to his wife. He's getting married in five days. So big hand, Chris. Interesting thing, the number of marriages we do today, we still embed the words of a contract rather than a covenant. We put prenuptials together. Why do we do that? I just want to make sure that when I went into this with Laura, I want to get it all back in case she doesn't hold up her end of the bargain or she does the same. You hear people doing that. It's not about a covenant. It's about a contract. I can't begin to tell you how many times that I sit with couples and they want to alter and reorder the words of the marriage vow to make sure that there's an out in there. And God says, no, 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 no. I'll tell you what the out is. You're dead. (laughs) That's pretty clean, right? Now, sin and brokenness and, you know, distortion, and so there's lots of grace and lots of redemption, and people get remarried, and so we embrace everybody and we move on because that's God's deal. We don't do the judging. That's His. But God says, if you're choosing to marry... It's a covenant relationship. I'm sorry, women, you're stuck with the guy. That's just the way it is right now. But that's a covenant relationship. And if we really understood that, God says, if you lived in covenant in your marriages, you would be a light to this world that would remarkably reflect the wonder of the grace of God. Is that not true? There's another relationship that's really based on a covenant as well. Anybody want to take a shot at this one? parenting. And you're all going, oh man, really? I thought I could get rid of them at 18. No, a parenting relationship. What is that all about? Parenting out of this relationship of love between a man and a woman, children are coming. We know that they're a gift from God. We are stewards of that. And so parents, what do we do? We love our kids unconditionally, even when they do things which disappoint us. We don't change our love for them. Why do we do that? Because we have a heavenly father that has loved us the same way as we love our kids. We stand there and we support them and we embrace them. And even when their choices don't make sense, we go, it's okay. I'm still going to love you because this is a covenant relationship. Everybody good? Kids in the room? Man, have you got some power when you go home today? All right, number three, let's write it down. So God was teaching Israel what it was to be in community, what it was to be in a covenant relationship. Here's the third one real quickly, identity. God wanted these people to know you've got a brand new identity. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. God said, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me, what does it say? Read it out. A kingdom of priests and... Wow. Okay, I want to pause. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These were people who had been enslaved, mistreated, abused. Family members had been murdered. They had just finished grumbling all the way through the last three months on the way to this spot. They couldn't see what God was doing, and yet God makes a declaration over them. He goes, I want you to understand you're going to have community, you're going to be grounded in covenant, and you're going to have a brand new identity. You will be for me. This had been something God had already foretold through Abraham, and he said, I will make sure this happens. And he was stamping, he was imprinting all of these people with this brand new identity because when they got into this new promised land, it was filled with cultures and people that were anti-God and everything about them. There was wickedness and evil. And God says, I want to make sure that you understand something. 
You will not be the people you used to be. You're not broken. You're no longer the ones who are the wounded. You're no longer the ones who are the forgotten ones. You are going to be the chosen ones. You are going to be the powerful ones. You are going to be the called ones. You are going to be the ones whose God is in your midst. That's the power of identity when God steps into the story. We talked about this a number of years ago in a series. Let me take you back into a verse that's so important for us. We just did this in our Life Journal readings this week. Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what it says in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that we have been saved. And if you were to take Ephesians and pull out the words that describe who we are in Christ, here's what you would get in the first few chapters of Ephesians. God says you are loved, you are chosen, you are forgiven, you are adopted, you are restored, you are changed, you are empowered, you are included. God goes, that's what I've done for you. You didn't do anything. I did it all for you. And so we begin to understand something. When we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, friends, the enemy keeps us looking back at who we were. He has us going into the recesses of our mind, into the dark stages of our heart, and he goes, oh, that's what you did. I'm going to define you by your past actions. I'm going to define you by your past experiences. I'm going to define you by your woundedness. And God goes, no, I'm not. I'm going to look at my son on the cross, Jesus Christ. I'm going to look at the power of the Spirit that raised him from the dead, and I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to call you loved, and I'm going to call you forgiven, and I'm going to call you adopted, and I'm going to call you chosen. Now, don't misunderstand me. You can't do anything to earn this. You can't work for this. God says, done. I did it through my son, Jesus Christ, because here's what God knows. If we try to do it on our own, we will trip up. How many of you have failed? In church, people, hands up. We've all failed. And God knows we're going to trip and we're going to stumble. And he goes, that's why Jesus does it all. He's seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God, ever interceding for us, because he knows we're going to blow it. He knows He knows my moments, but he goes, it's okay, because in Christ, I will remind you of who you really are. You no longer live, Doug, but Christ lives in you. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus. That's why there's such power in this community, and there's power in covenant, because we get brand new identities. And so when we come to this, we're reminded of what Peter would tell those that were followers of Christ. So I want to do something a little bit different today. I want to do a declaration. And if you'll stand, if you're in this room here, if you're in the overflow, and if you're at home online, would you stand to your feet? I want to do a declaration that Peter makes because the words resound with truth from the Old Testament. Here they were at Mount Sinai. God through Moses was speaking to Israel. Now listen as Peter declares what Christ has done for us and our new standing before God. 1 Peter 2.9, you, it's all of you in the room, everybody listen to my voice, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is who you are today. That's the power of who we are in Christ. And here's what I know. When we leave this place, the enemy will do everything in his power to dissolve that truth. But friends, hold it. And until Jesus comes, let that truth go from generation to generation to generation in your family. You are 
God's special possession. Boy, I don't know about you, but when my parents would come home and do something for me and they would give me something special, I was like, ooh. In fact, just before I came into service, one little boy was at the back by the Atrium Cafe and he had a little transformer car. And he would open that car up and show me the transformer image that would come out of that. And his mother goes, that car is not going anywhere. That's his special possession. He holds on to it. We all had a special car, a special toy like that, special doll. God goes, you're mine. You're mine. I've got you in my hand. You're not going anywhere. Father, this morning, may the worship and the truth of this word resonate in our spirit as we sing our praise to you. In Jesus' name, let's worship together. Friends, hold this today. You are God's special possession. You. And for some of you, you're doubting that right now. In your mind, you're going, no, 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 no. How can that be? Because I know my life. Yeah, I know mine too. And if it was based upon my track record, I wouldn't count. But it's all on Jesus. And if we keep him at the center and we keep our eyes fixed on him, what a life. What a life we get to live. And if you're in the room today and maybe you're wondering, how do I enter into this life? What does this look like? Well, the Bible's very clear. It's very simple. He said, believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So you believe, you confess, you trust for the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus goes, welcome to the family. And from then, he's at the center. All your past, he's already paid the price for your sin. He's just waiting for you to sign up. And around here, we talk about saying yes to Jesus, and I would encourage you, do that. Make him Lord of your life today. Would you do that? Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray that those of us that have already declared our allegiance to Jesus and we're trusting you because you paid the penalty for our sin. You forgave us. You gave us new life. Again, today we are reminded we're your possession and we thank you for that. But I pray for the many that maybe for the very first time this morning they're going to say, yes, Jesus, I believe you are the son of the living God. You paid the price for my sin and by the power of God, not only were you crucified, but you are raised back to life. And because of that... There's nothing I need to do but to trust in you. And so today, I choose to trust you and say yes to you. And Father, I pray that those that pray that prayer, together we will rally around them, help grow them and walk with them. So whether online watching, whether in overflow or in this room, Lord, no matter where we are, your spirit is with us and we're now your children. And you call Abba Father through our hearts. And we pray it in Christ's name. And everybody said, God bless you. You may be seated this morning.